Welcome to Media in Transition 7 on the MIT campus, where the world gathered to address a key question affecting all of us. Just how are we coping with the instability of media platforms? The conference was held in May 2011, and along with the academic contribution of hundreds of scholars and the insights of a dozen plenary speakers, the conference was made possible through the financial support of the MIT Communications Forum, Comparative Media Studies, Writing and Humanistic Studies, Literature at MIT, and the Technology and Culture Forum. Okay, I think we're going to get started. I know some folks will be trickling in, but um, we can get this thing started. Um, as befits a conference on unstable platforms, a lot of our discussion is focused on technologies, on structures, on systems. Um, but this panel is going to actually focus much more on protocols, on practices, on the affordances that attend these unstable uh, platforms. Janice faced at their most extreme, we have a, a series of binary oppositions, trade-offs between transparency on one hand and privacy on the other, between action on the one hand uh, and efficacy on the other, between concentrations of power and new affordances for um, citizenly empowerment. Um, before we dig into this stuff, it would be good to introduce the folks to my left here, and I'll start with uh, Giuliana Cuccinelli who teaches in the Department of Communications at Concordia University in Montreal. She's a producer of film and video and organizes various forms of social media uh, outreach and organization with uh, Cree and Inuit First Nation peoples. And like everyone on this panel, she engages in, uh, obviously, in, in multiple forms of practice. Uh, next to her is Sandra Brahman, who teaches at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Uh, Sandra is among other things, chair of the law section of the IAMCR and author of, among other books, uh, Change of State, Information, Policy, and Power, an MIT press book. Um, and Sandra is, is very active, I think, in sort of using legal discourses in critical ways, and that's a, a very interesting mode of practice, uh, especially through her leadership of this and formerly the um, ICA, I think, right? You, were, you chaired the law group there. And finally, all the way at the end of the table, Richard Rogers, who teaches at the University of Amsterdam. And some of you, I'm sure a lot of you have encountered uh, his students here. There are, I think, three panels of, uh, of uh, students from the Amsterdam program, where he chairs the program in new media and digital culture. Richard is also director of govcom.org foundation and author of uh, a new book, a forthcoming book, again, among other books, a forthcoming book on digital methods that MIT Press it is forthcoming, right, or is it out? Forthcoming. Forthcoming. Another plug for the good old MIT Press. Uh, that's where that one's coming out. Um, our job in this uh, next 90 minutes is, besides standing between you and the drinks that are out in the, out in the hall, uh, is to work up actually a good thirst. Um, but this panel is also a panel of kind of about where the rubber hits the road, the place where the linkages that we saw in the first plenary between platforms, unstable platforms, and unstable institutions, stable platforms, stable institutions, uh, where we look primarily at the press and the, and, and the, and the printed word. Um, the linkage between that and what we saw in the last plenary on issues of storage and access of information and cultural memory, where these things really come together. Um, at the end of the day, the instability of platforms across all sectors 
seems to boil down to questions of changing relations to power. Power in a social and political sense, power over knowledge, the construction of knowledge, the deployment and distribution of knowledge, power over the imagination and desire. Power at the end of the day when, when platforms are unstable, power is what's at stake. This has been one of modernity's longest discursive threads. Uh, from Hobbes to Locke, Matthew Arnold to Benedict Anderson, a lot of people have talked about this in different ways, at different moments, in different uh, regimes. If we can link unstable platforms to unstable institutions, and I think, you know, I think there's a very good historical case to be made for this, we can also chart the, um, the desperate measures taken by threatened social elites and institutions to hold fast, to redeploy these new platforms in ways that help them to retain their power. Um, to keep their grip. And at the same time, we have generations, even, even, even centuries of what might anachronistically be called uh, hackers, who've done their best to reimagine and redistribute power, to rethink and reposition the old uncertainties by making creative use, innovative use of unstable platforms. Uh, I just want to give two very different uh, examples, but both speak to the point. Uh, here at MIT, CMS, the program I'm in, has a, has a research project together with the Media Lab called the Center for Future Civic Media. And this is a project backed by the Knight Foundation that is very much, you know, it started from the, the sort of premise, Knight is a newspaper sort of related organization, started with the idea that, well, newspapers were falling through the cracks, especially on a local level. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, no problem. It's the local papers that are falling through. So how can we use new technologies? How can we use media to actually galvanize the local, to give people on the local level a means of engaging with their communities, of collecting and analyzing information, of sharing that information. And what the center does is actually develop myriad tools, all kinds of tools that help people map information, track information, circulate information. And these, these things that we make, if you go to the website for Center, Future, center for Future Civic Media, you'll, you'll, you'll see them all. The tools are there to take and use. These are tools that are being deployed in the, in the you know, jungles of Peru, in Mexico, in uh, little communities throughout the states. Um, but really ex interesting examples of taking advantage of this moment of unstable platforms to actually come up with new technologies, new insights, new tools that people can actually use to, to redistribute uh, power. Another very different example, and a, a maybe a more complicated and uh, potentially problematic one has to do with something like WikiLeaks, where we've seen um, something that works quite well in some dimensions, like Wikipedia, that notion of, of, of you know, collaboration, a certain kind of anonymity, be really redeployed to break some of the institutional bottlenecks of knowledge, uh, of information flow, uh, to work, working in very, you know, both strategic and interesting ways with existing uh, organizations for the distribution of knowledge, i.e. newspapers, the, the world's leading newspapers, the, the newspapers with big reputations. It's a very interesting collaboration, and for all the demonization of WikiLeaks, I think one has to also respect the, uh, both the endeavor of trying to make things open and the strategic uh, uh, partnership with, with legacy organizations like the press. So anyway, that's, those are two very different ways of, uh, though related, ways of thinking about this redeployment of, of, of uh, information, of knowledge, by, again, making use of unstable platforms. Lots to talk about here, but I think um, 
you know, what we might start with is just some sense of the pros and cons. And the first question, what are the greatest dangers? What are the greatest opportunities? What are the implications of some of these transformations? And each of these folks has a different uh, experience domain. So why don't we just start with Juliana? Sure. Thank you. <clears throat> um, I'll just tackle one of the questions. Um, if we've got enough time, I'll move on to the second one. But I think one of the most compelling shifts in these sectors from what sort of I can draw from my experience has been really the ability to expose problems um, in our community, um, in our society, and around the world, really, to a global audience. Um, commonplace uh, websites such as YouTube and Facebook function now as sort of an avenue um, to a global audience. So it's no longer about just the television or the radio. You're now reaching out to a much wider, wider audience. Um, and what we're seeing is really a tremendous growth in these platforms and what they can do for communities. And then I'll draw a little bit from the work that I've done in, in the different sort of Aboriginal, mainly um, Cree and Inuit communities in Canada across Quebec. Um, for example, in the Cree and Inuit community that I worked with in northern Quebec um, not too long ago, I collaborated, I collaborated with them with a group of in-service teachers. So these are women, um, women and men actually, between the ages of 30 to 55 being the eldest. Um, and what I saw there when we got together, we realized that there was very, very little representation of Cree people online. I mean, it was to the point where we logged on to Google Map and searched for um, Wiscaganish, which was the community that I was working in, and realized there was nothing but trees and land on Google Map, um, which was wrong because there were actually people that live there. So we went in, and part of the project there was to collaboratively take pictures of the community of the different settings of the different people that live and work there and actually upload them to Google Map so they can actually be represented online. Um, we also collaboratively created um, a wiki using Peanut Butter Wiki um, on Cree communities in general. So I think the ability for us to really to get together, and we were a group of about 15 people, um, to come together and really use new media as a form to spread some knowledge, Cree knowledge, which you know we don't really read up on or, or are taught in schools. Um, that was sort of an interesting experience um, on my part. Um, I think what we're also starting to see, and, and I'm sort of actively involved with Witness, which is um, an organization led by uh, the musician Peter Gabriel. Um, I've, I've had a, the opportunity to work with a girl named Liz Miller, and we've collaboratively done some workshops together. Um, they have a website called thehub.org. I'm sure several of you have heard of it. And what thehub.org does, similar to ushahidi.com, um, is basically they create um, a website where you can map sort of crisis. And uh, thehub.org is really a video activism site. So that site functions as a way to capture sort of injustices going on and having the ability to upload them to a global audience where you can share this, these sort of injustices that are going on um, with people around the world. Um, Another important issue with that ability and what, what, new, what new media allows you to do is to archive um, and to really preserve these injustices. So if you go on the hub.org, on ushahidi.com as well, it allows you to sort of backtrack and look at different things and different events that have gone on um, that shouldn't have happened. And that allows you to share them with, with sort of a global audience as well. Um, I think I just have some notes written down. Um, another thing actually at, at, at a more local level and then I'll sort of pass it on is recently in Montreal what I've really noticed um, and this was really a, compelling for me I, I found was 
one of the major issues in Montreal, in my city where, where I grew up and lived in, was racial profiling with police officers and youth. It's a huge, huge issue. And what we've noticed over the years is um, a lot of dialogue going on, on on Facebook, on YouTube, a lot of videos posted of incidents that's ha that have happened, captured by young people that have posted this work online. And recently, actually about five days ago, uh, the People's Rights Commission and the Youth Commission of Quebec came together, held a press conference, and gave the sort of Quebec government a, uh, a report that had different incidents over the past year that they've collected from personal interviews, as well as stuff that they drew from online forums um, and online conversations from Facebook to YouTube, you name it. They've collected all this information, gave it to them. Um, and what the report urges is that the government adopt an anti-discrimination training for police officers um, and to sort of hire more visible minorities. So this was one sort of key recommendation. And I mean, they're still in talks, but it's, it's just sort of, for me, it shows just a little step of what new media can do, social media specifically, what they can do um, when it's in the hands of young people or, or adults for that matter. Uh, again, my compliments to the chefs because I can see already this is a very nice blend of very different approaches. Among the things that we do, of course, is theorize. We offer up ideas. That's among our forms of political activity as scholars. I want to start by talking about the, what I understand to be the nature of power today, uh, as with the economy and everything else. I believe the nature of power is has changed as a result of um, what's happened with digital technologies. I want to talk about how we try to handle power today and then what the combination of those means for how we understand the world as a kind of foundation for addressing the, the questions that come. So for decades, political scientists have distinguished among power uh, three forms of power, instrumental, structural, and symbolic. Instrumental power, I'm controlling your behaviors by hitting you over the head, shooting a gun at you. I'm controlling the material world. Structural power, I'm shaping your behaviors by shaping the rules and the institutions through which you engage in actions. Symbolic power, I'm controlling your behaviors by persuading you that the only way to do something or the right way to do something is something like that. I'm arguing that in today's environment, we have a fourth form of power uh, that I'm now calling informational. I started by calling it genetic because it deals with the informational foundations, uh, the constituent informational constituent elements of power in its instrumental, structural, and symbolic forms. That got too confusing because I also write about biotechnology. So um, informational power uh, has both changed the way that instrumental, structural, and symbolic power operate and brought new ways of exercising power into our environment. An example of a change in the instrumental realm would be smart guns, guns uh, that the bullets of which can uh, follow heat profiles, go around walls to find uh, the subject, that they're, the target that they're after. A smart gun will beat a dumb gun anytime. Um, an example of an informa a, a way in which information has changed the nature of structural power, uh, to take an example from the U.S. government, um, we have a, an Office of Management and Budget, it's out of the White House, that has actually changed the rules for how government agencies and departments are able to use uh, re the results of research as inputs into policymaking. Um, I know this is an example of, I know from experience that if you say you're going to give a talk on the Office of Management and Budget, that people will fall asleep on the streets in front of you for miles. Uh, but this is an example of the ways in which um, altering the information flows within government has dramatic changes in how we operate. And an example would be 
Uh, say you've got statutory law. Congress says you should take care of the children of uh, immigrants, whether they're legal or, Im or illegal, whether or not they're migrant or uh, fixed in place. Make sure they have medical care. Make sure they have education. Our Congress can decide that. But the Office of Management and Budget can say you can't collect any information about those children because it's too costly and you can't do any research on the effects of that because we're kind of not interested in it. So the uh, entire intent of the legislation is vacated. An example of a change, a ways in which informational power has changed the nature of symbolic power in today's environment, I think WikiLeaks is actually a very good example because while they're pursuing, um, the, the U.S. and other governments are pursuing Assange and Bradley Manning who did the cable leaks, um, on the one hand, on the other hand, all the diplomats are using the content, and some people have even suggested it may have been in their best interest uh, to have had the content out there. The content's being used in courtrooms as evidence. It's being used to verify uh, research in the academic world and so forth. Um, uh, so and in terms of informational power, new kinds uh, that are, have been introduced, we have certainly new forms of data mining. The Romans uh, kept data on their, on their citizens, but we have new um, much more complex ways of doing that now. Information as an agent, when you launch um, autonomous software operating in the net, you have information actually making things happen on its own without human intervention. Another distinction that political scientists have long made is between power and its actual and potential forms. It's actual when I am hitting you over the head and shooting that gun. It's potential when I say, I'm not hurting you right now, but believe me, behind my back I have a gun and, uh, and I will use it if, uh, if I need to. We can also think now of power in its virtual form, and here I'm using the concept of virtual in the way it was introduced by the Italian economist Roberto Scazzieri, who thinks of the virtual as that which does not yet exist, but which could be brought into being using extant knowledge, what we already know, and resources we already have. This is an area where a lot of our legal and political battles are going on in the area of encryption. Whether or not you're allowed to be involved with encryption is trying to stake out control in the future over something that doesn't exist by controlling something now. The same thing is going on with intellectual property rights. In, in the area of biotechnology, the biggest battles now are for the patent rights at the beginning of various processes of the, of the genetic information so that those at the beginning can claim control over or property rights in that which follows down the road in the processing chain. So with that kind of theoretical framework for understanding what's, uh, what is the nature of power in today's environment, how do we deal with it? And so we'd like to think that we have a legal system to help us control abuses of power but we're in a world in which now, although we tend to assume that the law is by humans and made for the service of human, human society, in fact, increasingly we have what I've called post-human law. We have machines making decisions for humans. We have humans using machinic principles to make decisions for humans. And we have humans choosing to privilege machinic systems over the social system when they're making legal decisions. So we are seeing a transition of the law away from being made by humans for humans to being made by machines 
for machines. Uh, it's increasingly globalized. We all uh, talk, think about anti-terrorism laws. This is actually mandated by the UN and uh, is homogenous in a lot of important ways across the globe. We think of the law as principle-driven. We have constitutional principles or foundational principles. But actually, um, in the anti-terrorism world, which dominates our contemporary communications environment, Interpol... Uh, the international policing force has been the dominant shaper of law around the world, and that's practice-based. So policing practice has replaced constitutional principles as the dominant shaper of the law. In what we are all now experiencing is a state of exception, and we have to remember that anywhere in the world now, when we're talking about legal, whatever legal frameworks have been developed to prevent abuses of power, we are all since 9-11 operating in a state of exception in which everything and anything is possible. So the bottom line for me is that when we are thinking about how our political system operates, the ways we're taught about it in school, the ways we're taught that it is discussed in the media, it's like watching the magician's hand. Uh, we're all looking over here where the formal structures are described, but the real game is over here and we're not seeing it. Um, architects uh, have the concept of spandrels. Uh, the spandrel is something that had a function in a building, and in um, early times you needed a, a triangle above the door in order to get the arch to hold its place. As construction techniques developed, we no longer need that, that triangle above the arch to hold, for the arch to work, but we keep the triangle and we use it for aesthetic or other kinds of purposes. In my view, much of the legal system is now spandrels. It's there for decorative purposes. What looks like an organizational form is actually a means of rhetoric uh, and so forth. So I think there are a lot of implications, which I'll be spelling out in, in response to other questions, about how we operate and try to deal with power in today's environment. Thank you. <laughs> so in, in a, a book I wrote uh, called Information Politics on the Web, I argued that the web um, was a collision space for alternative accounts of reality, and one that, was, uh, that had a great deal of potential um, in, in that sort of C. Wright Mills sense, that is to... Uh, introduce alternative accounts, disrupt the familiar as well as the established. Um, now, this was in um, around 2004, 2005, and I was relying on a couple of things, a couple of notions that I, that I worked up. The, the first one was, um, in some sense, the side, what, I, what I call the side-by-sideness principle. So, um, alternative accounts could rest rather easily side by side with more established ones on the web given particular kinds of algorithms. Algorithms um, that were, uh, interestingly enough, bringing the, making the web into something um, that was quite different in terms of uh, sources that were presented to you, making the web into something that was quite different from the TV news or making the web into something that was quite different from uh, the newspaper. Now, <clears throat> what I see is some of, the, some of the larger shifts, at least in this uh, uh, rather micro space, um, is a shift from, um, let's say, the info web where sources could compete with each other fairly well, alternative ones with established ones, 
this sort of info space to a space which is becoming uh, less uh, egalitarian uh, and, and uh, is providing us with uh, increasingly on the web more and more familiar and established hierarchies of credibility. So we see a shift uh, from this kind of side-by-sideness principle or we see the kind of shift from the web as a collision space for alternative accounts of reality to, to a web um, that um, is providing us increasingly with the TV news. And, and uh, the first sense that I had of this was quite some time ago um, when I typed terrorism into Google and received in the top ten results whitehouse.gov, cia.gov, fbi.gov, um, the Heritage Foundation, and somewhere around results uh, 19 and 20, Al Jazeera and CNN. So there was this sort of familiarity that was being, or these dominant sources that were being returned. Now, is it getting better? Um, I'm not sure. So one of the what we have now is a transition, arguably, and this is what we've been talking about in the sessions, the Digital Methods Amsterdam sessions, one, two, and three. What we've been talking about um, is the transition from the info web to the social web, and the and the and the kinds of implications. Um, uh, so there are a bunch of them, um, and I'll mention maybe a couple, and also in relation to. Um, some of the points that were made about the uh, uh, the use of the of new technologies uh, by indigenous peoples uh, and the, and then also the special uh, URLs and projects that you mentioned on digital witnessing and the rest um, witness etc so do we now you know use the social plugin right so if i 'm witness, um, do I align myself with Facebook and if I do um, does that mean that the like button is going to start taking over my life or, or my, my witnessing? Um, and what would that mean? And this is what we were just going over recently um, in, in some of the sessions. Um, so does the web then just become this kind of uh, happy, happy space, a happy web, the thumbs up web, the, the, the web that where we only like uh, or be silent? Um, so, so, so I'm concerned about a shift away from, from the critical web, one where these alternative accounts of reality could stand by, side by side with the, uh, with the established, to one which is watered down, which is happy and, and, and therefore uh, uncritical. So this is one major shift that I see. Um, okay, so I mean, this is great. Um, so we have a change in the nature of power, one that ripples through the kinds of tr- traditional uh, norm- notions of power that we have. Um, we have uh, the still always contested space of representation. How do we do it? How does how, Who has the ability to represent? Who's being represented? We have even a kind of terrain shift, a, a way it came up actually in uh, Lana Swartz's paper earlier today, this sort of interesting moment where the hyper-local and the transnational are kind of inhabiting the same space is probably the the wrong the wrong term to use but but are coincident in in, in some sense and that's ways in which the hyperlocal can get out to the world but also ways in which the the world impinges upon the hyperlocal um, so a key question i guess and and we have this happy web we have the happy web where we can find whatever we want we can say whatever we want we can all express ourselves to our heart's content and the net result is possibly a kind of cacophony in which nothing is really heard where we lose a critical edge so as Media scholars, as educators, um, um, as as folks who run institutions like archives, 
a key question is how can we how can we enhance a sense of there's a, a number of critical changes at hand how can we enhance the public's awareness how can we bring them to a critical insight how can we increase efficacy in dealing with this rapidly changing set of set of concerns and I know all of you do this in, 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 in different ways, including the classroom, but if you have any insights into how we can help people think through this process in a critical way, it'd be great to hear. Can I go first? Any, any order, <laughs> jump in. This is conversation time. Um, actually, just to add to what um, Richard just said, just to follow that up, I came across a term not too long ago called slacktivism. Yeah. Um, and I, just, I laughed when I read the Wikipedia entry on it. And for those of you who don't know, slacktivism is basically when you, you, know, you give up your Facebook status for a few minutes to cure cancer, right? It's sort of a feel-good measure on, on how you can use social media to, to cure cancer or any kind of, of um, sort of organization. Um, and it, it made me laugh because people actually believe in, you know, they believe that, yeah, if I, you know, if I give up my status for a few minutes, that will actually contribute to cancer research, which the reality is it doesn't. Um, but it's the fact that people actually believe that, that just, I can't, I can't wrap my head around that. Um, but I think what's important is really, I think we need to start to pay attention to sort of the complexity of our online actions, and we need to understand that. And I think one way to, just to sort of answer your question, um, I don't think there's one single sort of method or magical tool, right, that will collectively enhance our knowledge um, on, or on public literacy, right? Um, I think we need to start paying attention to individual life worlds, right, and how each person or what each person brings to the computer once they start typing or clicking. I think that's what we're sort of missing is we, sort of, we keep trying to force and trying to find this magical thing that will sort of educate everyone, um, and that thing doesn't exist. I think if we take it one step back, which actually ties into another question that you, you sent us, um, I think for me, I mean, coming from a teacher education program, that's what I did my PhD in, it just, it, it boggled my mind when I realized that at the undergraduate level, I think in Canada it's a little bit different, but at the undergraduate teacher training level, there was only one course on media literacy, um, which just does not make sense. These are kids coming into a classroom, um, and they think the teachers have to be ready and have to sort of have the tools and the knowledge and the experience that these kids are bringing into the classroom. And I think that's where we sort of, as educators, we need to sort of take a step back and realize that I think that's where we can make a change is in the teacher education programs. And I'm not blaming the teachers. I'm more blaming the school boards and the government that's not pouring enough money into helping the, the sort of the problem get fixed. Um, and I think one way of doing it, which I did with a lot of my research, was I brought in sort of a university and community collaboration, which means we use the sort of facilities and the space of the university that I was part of at the time being McGill University. Um, and we collaborate with different communities who don't have access, who don't have access to the technology or broadband access for that matter. So I think that's one way of really tying together how we can start to fix that, that problem of, you know, how can we get rid of, of um, you know, public literacy? How can we make students or, or young people more aware once they start to become sort of critical citizens. So we just, uh, I have a new colleague, uh, we have a new colleague joining us here, and his research area has to do with, um, he works with immigrant groups in L.A., and uh, one of the things he's very interested in is how the production process itself can be an activator, can be a trigger. 
And so you've done work in film and video. You've mm -hmm. also done work in, in helping folks work with uh, develop social media tools. Mm -hmm. is, is that something you're seeing? Are you seeing that engagement in the production process turns people into more active and critical consumers or, or, or participants, the better word, participants in the media uh, Yeah, scene. I mean, definitely. It, it just sort of it, it hurts me when I start to see these projects that, you know, they come into a community and, they, you know, it becomes a top-down sort of knowledge. We will train you on how to use cameras, right? It sort of ignores the knowledge um, of those communities, and that's what I've seen often in Korean Inuit communities. Mm -hmm. um, so I felt with my research, I had to go in. Yes, I come from a production background, therefore I have those skills, I've got those aesthetics, I have a certain set of competencies. But I went into the community just sort of leaving that behind me. And I went in with sort of respect, and that's a really big thing in Aboriginal communities. You have to respect their culture, as is in most communities. Um, and I just I felt going in, it, it was a collaborative process. It was about participation. It was about you teaching me and that sort of sharing that knowledge together. And I think when, you, when, it really, when it doesn't work out, it's when people come into a community saying, I will teach you how to do this. You can't go into communities doing that, especially with production. Um, I don't know if anyone's familiar with the, in 1967, the Centennial for Canada, they created a program called Challenge for Change. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that. Um, there's a really great website of it. It was created by the National Film Board of Canada, and that was really sort of the beginning of um, video production like, within sort of a participatory nature. So what, that, what Challenge for Change did was they went into different communities across Canada from Halifax to uh, Montreal was one of the, sort of the hubs, um, and they went into marginalized communities and trained, worked with them to create video productions specifically using VTR technology, specifically related to uh, medical issues at the time because we didn't have medical um, coverage at the time. So a lot of times when I'm, drawing, when, I, when I'm sort of drawing from my own work, I draw from Challenge for Change and what they've done. And there's actually a great book that was just released on Challenge for Change that actually talks about that. So it was really the, the beginning of participatory video, and I'll often compare sort of social media and, and participatory culture with what happened um, with challenge for change. Yeah, can I pick up on your on the media literacy point because yeah, I sure. think it's it's uh, really central, but also that there are multiple forms of literacy. And one of the things um, that has been a bit distressing to me, I think, in academia at least, is the tendency to privilege now visual liter literacy over print literacy or over other kinds of literacy. And I think we have to remember that each form of literacy has its own affordances, and we need to retain print literacy at the same time that we're training people how to think visually, how to be critical about the media, um, how to evaluate information, how to be literate in terms of their use of technologies, and so forth. Um, one of the things that has really uh, struck me recently has been um, a loss of, if we can use the concept, civic literacy, a basic understanding of political causality. And uh, if you don't mind, I'll use the recent, uh, the current case of Wisconsin, which I know actually did reach the international media. Um, it's a kind of dramatic case. The uh, labor issue that has gotten so much play is there, but it's far from the most important uh, matter. Our Tea Party governor... Um, is uh, going to take the basically the state budget and turn it into a venture capital fund to try to attract companies to come to the state where we have about the highest taxes in the country. Um, he has said no to uh, 
high-speed rail money from the federal government because we don't need that kind of transportation. He said no to broadband uh, money from the government throughout the state of Wisconsin because, after all, copper wire was good enough for Grandpa. It's good enough for us. Um, he is uh, taking um, mathematics and science education out of the primary and secondary schools. He's taking advanced training out of the primary and secondary schools. Um, and he seems to think that this is the environment he can create where he will attract businesses. So I think there's a problem that, that, those, that he has understanding actual political causality. And then what about the citizens? So the citizens, many of whom didn't vote in that gubernatorial election, uh, get mad. Um, he says before the election, he says, uh, I'm going to not take the high-speed rail. I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. He gets voted in. He does the things he says he's going to do. Then people start demonstrating. Uh, then they start going to Madison, our state capitol, and people who didn't vote spend a couple weeks sitting in the capitol having great fun in the middle of the night. Um, and uh, in the end, everything he wanted passed, and we had an opportunity to recall some of our legislators, but those people who were quite anxious to sleep in the Capitol in the middle of the night wandered away from most of those uh, recall uh, uh, campaigns and just sort of faded off into the night. So what is their understanding of political causality here in terms of what it is that could be done to actually change uh, the political environment? So I think... Um, there are uh, the, the literacy, I would add civic literacy, um, to the list of things that we should be thinking about. Um, and I would also, uh, increasingly, although my life is staked at the higher ed level, uh, I'm interested in younger and younger um, teaching at a lower and lower level because it's clear that it's sort of basic understandings of how the world works. So when we were, and when I was thinking about the education question, I wanted to link it to the first forum when several of the speakers wound up talking about meta language, meta-tagging, um, sort of meta-structures. And uh, it seems to me that that's among the things that we could be teaching in the primary grades as well. In the 1950s, we were taught set theory and binary mathematics in primary school. Richard Nixon then announced that he believed that the political activity of the 1960s and 1970s was because we had learned set theory and binary <laughs> mathematics. I don't think that's true, um, and so um, I would, you know, I think uh, we should really be paying a lot of attention to what goes on with primary education, even though most of us are living at universities. I'm going to just jump in before Richard talks, and uh, to say that he's got to be like one of the, he's got to be on the most wanted list in the Netherlands because he's gotten humanities students, media studies students, to be taking computer courses in droves. And um, maybe I overstate, but I think the, the, the projects your students have been engaging in really speaks to a kind of, another kind of literacy and that results in, in re some really wonderful tools. You maybe have something else to say, but I think no, that's Thank a, you very much. Yeah. No, I was, I was going to say that I don't really like the term literacy, uh, but now that you've provided that compliment. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I was, I mean, literacy, I'm, I was just thinking um, whether... Literacy has been like a form of uh, used as a form of symbolic or structural power. I mean, historically, those deemed illiterate were excluded. Um, so those, I mean, uh, so anyway, the, the term itself, I, I find uh, somewhat problematic. But, but what to teach? Um, uh, less so. Um, yeah, a bunch of things. I mean, one of the things that. Um, 
um, that's been striking me recently is um, these ri the rise of these sort of media ecologies, sort of all these kind of interlinked services. So I need my Gmail account in order to, you know, to log in to uh, manage my web history. I love that. Manage my web history. Um, <clears throat> I mean, and I was just, it was the effects of media ecology were really, um, became quite stark to me this past week when working with some, one in particular Iranian activist who told me that um, they use only those pieces of software where you can change your identity at will, number one. Um, so they don't use Facebook, but they do use FriendFeed. Um, number one, and number two, um, they make sure that they don't have to remain logged into anything um, in order to use some other service. Um, so then suddenly software or, or media ecologies become uh, something that one can e evaluate according um, to um, the, the kinds of uses that they, that they enable and the kinds of uses that they constrain. I mean, one is, to, one is to whether or not you can... One is it whether or not the extent to which you can be continually uh, traced. I mean, this is one thing. I don't know if it's a literacy issue, but it's one thing I think that would be worth uh, teaching. I mean, it's just one. Uh, we're going to open up for questions. Uh, well, I'll do one more round here, but um, please uh, formulate those questions and get ready to ask them. But it's, it's really just to go back to a point we talked about earlier and that, and that Sandra uh, brought up again through her anecdote in Wisconsin, and that is the space between an active citizenry and an effective citizenry. Huh? The, 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 there are a lot of ways to be active, and often those actions can be impulsive, they can be fleeting and momentary, but they don't necessarily have traction. And I guess, I guess a key question, especially at a moment when we're seeing a lot of new forms of uh, social organization appear online, enabled, enabled uh, by, the, by the Internet, uh, new kinds of networks, new kinds of um, – a lot of, lot of instantiations of social media. You know, are there really good – are there good models for making a more effective citizenry? Are there, are there lessons that we should be, uh, um, you know, giving better – more airtime to in terms of that? What are, what are ways we can stimulate a more effective and active but – as opposed to just active citizenry. If any of you have comments on that. And meanwhile, folks, if you have questions, um, it's going to, we'll do it right after this round. If I can link it directly to the media studies interests that are uh, central to most of the people in the room, um, I think the, the, the question of how we are culturally representing um, citizenship activities is another side of the civic literacy question. So we still have uh, endless amounts of research on the effects of violence on television and in video games, um, but very little attention has been paid to the fact that we're modeling voting people off the island because their skirt is too long um, as, as a means of political activity. So I think that um, uh, as media studies scholars, uh, that, it, that, that studying that and in terms of interventions, I think that the behavioral models and the cultural practices are actually uh, now going to be at the heart of, of inspiring a transition in terms of how people are understanding what effectiveness might be. I mean, I just have one, one really short thing to say. Maybe it's more anecdotal, but... Um, Publics are active on Twitter. Uh, we, what we found was um, something quite startling, that if you look at um, Twitter activity over a 24-hour period, 
the, it only slows at five past four in the morning um, <laughs> for about five minutes, something like this. Um, now, uh, to, I mean, so there's activity. Um, and the question is, to, I mean, to me, you know, what, what kind of activity that is, uh, what, is it, uh, what does it enable, you know, et cetera. Um, but uh, there's activity out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, just, um, just to add to that, um, part of my dissertation, which I, I actually submitted in past November, um, was to look at exactly that, what kind of activity was going on with Twitter, with Facebook, with YouTube, um, and how specifically young people were actively involved. And I sort of I came up with a model um, which was basically a circle with three circles within it. And the first one was the plug level, the play level, and the praxis level. And so the plug level is essentially they're plugged in. They don't really care what they're saying. Their status means nothing. Um, the play means that there was some form of critical sort of social commentary. And the praxis part was really they were engaged in some, in some form of social commentary um, more than at the play level. So, I mean, I spent about six months looking at this. Um, and also, I mean, it went beyond Facebook. It also went into what they were doing socially. So, but that's just a model that I sort of came up with, sort of the play, plug, and, and praxis and the different levels. May I just, uh, because this is a, a hobby horse for me a bit, but I think there is a real, I won't go into all kinds of stuff about policy analysis, but the emphasis on speech that doesn't connect to decision-making is, to me, one of the limits of efficacy. So you can have lots of talk out there, but if it isn't actually affecting decision-making, that's an issue. And so I think there's a way of thinking about um, how we're using our technologies as as epistemological tools that then affect decision-making practices. And I'll just Hmm. stop there. Uh, Thanks. This is actually pretty thrilling. So let me try to connect the dots. At the MacArthur Digital Conference, in Long Beach, there was talk about power and agency among young kids from diverse backgrounds. So it's one thing to have them look at power. It's another thing for them to understand how to use it and create agency, which is then actual change in the real world, but to use digital devices to do that, to make it more practical, faster, whatever. So the question is this. If we could do a thought experiment in this room and create this sort of power agency machine using devices using platforms that already exist, and people are willing to assemble this, would you be interested in, in advising that group? Is this an offer? Yes. <laughs> yes. No, no money changes hands. No, everybody in this would be a volunteer. For sure, I would. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> that was an easy one. That's the shortest answer I've heard uh, all this weekend. An emphatic yes. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for that. Is that on? Yeah? Okay, good. Thank you very much. Um, I enjoyed that. Interesting. Um, and I have to probably apologize in advance. I work with a, probably a bit of a different theoretical background. Lots of French theory in there. And um, there's two things I would just like to ask you to maybe shortly focus on. One is um, the power of media, actual media, not the people doing, working, controlling with media. And the other is um, your understanding or your concept of power. If you follow um, Michel Foucault, for example, there is a model of discipline, control, that is a very strong power aspect. And it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, 
um, that lots of things you said actually go into that direction. But there's also, as Foucault described, another kind of power coming up that he describes with the age of governmentality and the technologies of the self. And now especially with new modern so-called um, Web 2.0 media, digital media, it seems to me that there's a very strong aspect of the media actually not controlling us or for forbidding us of doing things, but encouraging us to do things. And I'm, I've, I've brought that up already in, an, in another panel. I'm not sure whether it's empowering if you put or if you get people to put a community on a map, is that not exactly what Google Maps would want you to do? Is it not exactly that YouTube actually, as the slogan says, wants you to broadcast mm. yourself? If you search for the hashtag MIT7, look how many posts there are of this conference, of this people already on Twitter. So I'm just wondering, is that not a different dimension of power that we should also focus on the power of media actually getting us to do things and not even so much getting but wanting us to do things? Constantly. I'll just, yeah, I'll answer that first. Um, with a lot of my research and a lot of the work that I do with, with the different communities, the first thing um, that I always do is I always try and keep it within a critical framework. So, you know, we go back to basic media literacy, which means understanding who Google is, understanding who YouTube is, who owns them, um, the power structures there. So that's a dialogue that always, always happens. So a lot of the participants are aware um, of who, you know, who Google is, who, you know, that YouTube is owned by so-and-so and, and so on. So that's a conversation that always, always happens throughout any of the work that I, that I participate in. Um, and yeah, you're definitely right. Like, I, I'm sort of feeding into, you know, Google Map wanting us to do that. However, the flip side of that is that I now have a group of 35 Cree people who are actually represented um, on a map that weren't there before. So I think the way that I try and approach a lot of the projects and the research is with every action I always try and see the complexity with it and I also have them, have them understand the power behind every action and, and who owns what and the corporations and how that works. That's very important for me because I've seen way too many projects where it's all about feeding into the sort of the consumption aspect of it. Um, and just to answer your first question, the power of media by itself, um, I come to things with sort of a social constructivist approach so I think a camera on its own can't really do much. Uh, and I remember a teacher telling me once, um, when I started shooting something, he's like, are you recording or are you shooting? And there's a difference there. Recording means I just pushed the record button and just randomly started to record stuff, whereas shooting means I'm actually thinking about what I'm shooting, how I'm framing it, how it's being represented, the ethical side of what I'm shooting and, and what I'm showing. So. I always, always, always bring in the critical component to any of the work that, that, I'll, that I do. Um, <clears throat> I think you were uh, referring to a couple of notions. Uh, the, the first one is participatory surveillance, right? So, so um, we, um, I, I think, increasingly knowingly participate in being uh, surveilled in exchange. In, uh, we're being enticed in exchange for product or access. Um, that's that's I mean that's that's one thing, and the other thing is that in doing so, um, we contribute to the second. We contribute to the worker bee economy, right? So we so we um, are pollinating, um, we're pollinating the hives, and 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 then you know the question is well, um, once we've you know come up with these terms, and once we um, um, think about them uh, critically, about our interactions with the new technologies and the effects, um, then we sort of get used to it. Uh, 
I mean, and this is, um, um, so I think we're all at the point where we know that we're participating in this sort of um, service for data model. So uh, I give my data, I get this service. Um, and we know that we're pollinating, we know that we're making these, these larger companies quite wealthy in doing so. Um, then what? It's the then what? Then what? As I understood your question also, I was uh, reminded of, um, I knew a lot of Guatemalans in the 1980s who were politically active and had to leave Guatemala and go into exile for that reason because they were, in fact, effective. And one uh, fellow told me that he came from a long line, a multi-generations of people who were politically active in Guatemala. With, but the difference was that his grandfather and his father could run into the jungle to hide, and he couldn't which is, I think, some of what you're thinking about. Um, so I certainly agree with you that the, that the media, in, in the framework I offered, I think the media have an enormous amount of power. I would fold it into I, forms of power aren't exercised singly, so depending on what you're looking at, you might have various combinations. Um, uh, and disengagement, and that's what's so interesting, again, about WikiLeaks. The, WikiLeaks works because of the moments of disengagement, the air gap between systems, the stepping away and the stepping back, and, and we um, haven't thought that through enough. Uh, certainly Foucault and other French thinkers, but Foucault in particular has been very influential on my thinking. Um, I think that he actually deals much more with uh, structural and symbolic power uh, in very traditional political theoretical ways than most people um, think about him. But what he does is he kind of lays it on his side. There's a wonderful uh, poet, Larry Eigner. If you like Charles Olson, you'll love Larry Eigner. He was paraplegic, and he wrote a wonderful book uh, called Everything on Its Side about what the world looked like when he fell out of his wheelchair and he couldn't on his own get back up. So he's looking at the same world, but everything is quite different about it. And I think Foucault does that. It's, it's the impact that he had and um, the, the um, approaches to policy analysis that I'm trying to promote, I think, are trying to do that. I'm going to say one more thing about governmentality. I do, I do specifically think that those who are doing policy analysis now must move beyond the geopolitically recognized governments into the formal and informal practices of both the private and public sector of governance and the cultural habits and predispositions that support both governance and government that I would use the term governmentality for. I, I, I'd like, what I'd like to, uh, this is very rich discussion, and I, I must, is this on? And I'm especially, I'm especially happy with the turn it's just taken because uh, I think there's been a bit, until the last responses to our Foucauldian, uh, a, a, uh, we, there's been too much optimism here. Uh, uh, no one yes. has ever accused me of being optimistic before. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't mean personally optimistic. <laughs> I mean that our discourse has been, it seems to me, more optimistic than might be justified. Or in any case, let's spend more time, I'd like to ask the panelists to spend a little more time talking about the dark side of this question. Yes, these new technologies empower in certain ways, but as has just come up, the empowerment of individuals is often an incredibly trivial one, uh, in which you trade something much more uh, precious that is used in, in, for surveillance or used for other forms of pow for power that, in effect, take away your agency. So that, that's one element that I'd like to hear a bit more about. But even more dramatically than that, uh, 
these new technologies are, are also in the hands, as, as uh, uh, Sandra was just suggesting, of governments, of, uh, of, of, of corporations that are interested in maximizing profit and couldn't care less about, in a serious way, about agency. Uh, it seems to me much too uh, easy or, or, or comforting uh, only to think about, I don't deny the magnificent, empowering agency possibilities of these technologies. I'm aware of them, I use them, I respect them. But I think that we need to, uh, I, I'm hoping that the, that, that the panel can uh, talk a bit more about this, this, the, the threats to agency, the threats to freedom that these very same technologies uh, uh, present or make possible. I'm just trying to think of this very famous article that I love assigning um, that's called um, I Have Nothing to Hide and Other... What? And Other Misunderstandings, yeah. <laughs> you know this piece? Um, where the, where the, the very interesting argument is... I mean, just to bring a couple of these things together, one very interesting argument is um, how we are overusing Foucault these days. Um, not, I mean, I, I use Foucault. I overuse Foucault. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but anyway, how we're overusing Foucault these days, um, um, I, I mean, it's, it's when thinking through uh, um, uh, the you know, surveillance society, the surveillance society via the internet, um, and forgetting about Kafka. So the point was... The point was um, th- that one of one of the one of the darker sides. I don't even know if it's dark, uh, but it's extremely annoying um, and irritable. Um, and is um, um, what happens when what I mean? What happens when your data body becomes out of date, or what happens when someone steals it? Or what happens? So, so there is there is this collection of data um, that's anything from as trivial to your form fields, your, uh, not your your fields and forms not being filled out properly, um, and so not getting then the confirmation email because it's sent to the because of a type or because it's sent to an old or the credit card is out of date and you can't change it to a new. All this stuff that we're relying uh, for our transactional, really mundane transactional things. Uh, on on a particular um, set of uh, sort of say uh, on a set of co- uh, data constructs um, to things that are very uh, real and very uh, uh, serious uh, when crossing borders, uh, etc. Um, so um, uh, the the idea of the the surveillance society and the internet, the what the plea was was to bring back. Uh, uh, yeah, the Kafka S. So we're increasingly, as a, as a sort of metaphor, and, and do away with the panoptic, um, and 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 think about um, the entanglements of of our new, yeah, data crises or something like this. I think for me the um, uh, the the areas in which one can be more hopeful have to do with trying to switch out the game, change the parameters of. How things are operating. Let's say if we're going to do titles, Hans Magnus Enzensberger, great uh, theorist of cultural industries, um, his book *Mediocrity and Delusion* is another um, useful one for the current period. But if we're thinking about what it means to be human, 
Um, this is a, a period actually in which um, I, I'm one among many who believe we are actually going through a period of species change. I think that's something we ought to be talking about with our students in their teens and early 20s. Um, I'm not a singularity person. I don't think we're leaving the planet in computer chips. But, um, but I do think that if we are learning how to live in an environment in which there actually is no personal privacy that, and in which we are simultaneously in touch with, with dozens or hundreds or thousands of people around the world, that is a qualitatively different way of being human. We know that we cognitively process information differently depending on the technologies, the communication technologies upon which we rely the most. So people born from 1970 on uh, tend to be much more facile with visual processing than those of us who were born earlier and are print-oriented. We have additional changes now with gamers who can simultaneously for 12 hours at a time track you know, complex narratives, half a dozen at a time, and so forth. And I don't think we paid enough attention to what we know about uh, differences in cognitively processing information and what that might mean for the forms of agency we're encouraging, how we're training people to use media, how we use media ourselves. I think there's a big issue about creativity. So um, uh, having gone way deeper into the different techniques used for data mining in this environment, the punchline of which is there's absolutely nothing you can do in the U.S. right now to avoid being targeted as a suspect of terrorism for surveillance purposes. There's nothing you can do. No way you can live your life and not fall within one or another of the categories. Um, so where does that take me? It takes me to creativity again. It takes us back to where we were on the first panel with the nature of narrative and that we need to keep uh, being uh, pushing the boundaries of creativity and so that we can speak with each other about political matters, about uh, public matters of shared concern in ways that will continually be moving ahead of any algorithmic techniques for discerning what our conversations are about. Um, one more title. The piece was actually lousy, but the title was great. Uh, it's something I think we all need to be thinking about in our lives daily. The title was, We Should Have Been Better Ancestors Than This. Hmm. Good, great title. And just to pick up on that, I mean, I, I, would, I would agree that, I mean, if we look at, so, so on one hand, I think a lot of us have inherited the, the Western notion of the transcendent subject, and we sort of, that's how it's always been. Humans have always had this, the same robust sense of self uh, and notions of privacy, et cetera, that we have. And there's, of course, plenty of historical scholarship that demonstrates that's not the case, that the, the self is a construct. And, 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 and we are at a moment where notions of the individual are, are very much um, being contested. And we're, we're at that moment of change. So it's very difficult both to extrapolate into a future where that's maybe more comfortable than it seems. We have anxieties. To me, the real anxiety comes with the kind of clash of regimes, clash of uh, uh, an older institutional order that's, that's trying to, that worked quite well in the age of the robust subject, but now has all this data at its disposal. That's the, that seems to me to be the, big, the, the, the great danger, that those institutions will, uh, will are abusing and, and trying to use that information to enhance their, their position, to regain a kind of stability, when were it just a free-for-all, but of course it's never a free-for-all, it's always a moment of contestation. But I think that's the danger, that those, those agencies can, um, can corrupt the process somehow, can, can override the process, can use it and pervert it, as opposed to letting us sort of continue to evolve as, as, a, as a species and, uh, and, and, you know, yeah. La uh, Lana. Um, hi. 
So a lot of the, I'm interested in money, uh, who isn't, but I'm particularly interested in money, and uh, one of the form of literacy that I have been most interested in recently is, so to, to use literacy somewhat broadly, is financial literacy. And financial literacy predominantly in just about every curriculum I've ever seen asks people to figure out how to work the system and exploit the system and get ahead using the system as it stands. Um, it does not encourage typically any sort of constructivism or creativity or, uh, or any kind of, kind of critical thinking beyond negotiating and navigating the system. However, in financial practice in the last 10 years, certainly, there has been since forever, but certainly in the last 10 years, there's been a tremendous amount of creativity happening at the very upper reaches of financial practice. Oh, not practice. that kind. Yeah. Oh, yes. So, I mean, um, you know, there's been financial engineers, um, as we like to call them in this building, um, uh, developing building, systems yeah. of high-frequency trading and CDOs and um, secondary mortgage markets that have been nothing if not deeply, deeply genius in their, in their ways. Um, and, and yet, on, at the level of the individual, at the level of the family, at the level of those who do not behave as financial professionals and do not use uh, technology and, and media in a professional way, there has been a discouragement of creativity. Um, so what I'm really curious about is how and this is not intended in any way to shore up what I think is actually a false dichotomy between optimistic and pessimistic kinds of approaches, um, but how we th begin to think about literacies, however problematic that term is, and the teaching of literacies that, that enable, so to speak, or empower creativity and enable empowerment in a way that does not foreclose in our role as knowledge producers, as, as, as academics, um, that does not foreclose using our informational power kinds of creativity that might occur um, at the ground level. Um, we've actually gone through four different ways of conceptualizing what we understand the information economy to be and what you're talking about. Um, I've had, you know, if I may plug a, a bit, but I've uh, I described as the representational economy, and obviously, we, globally, we know it's been quite dangerous. Um, I think if uh, if you're asking the question specifically as it would apply to the to the issue of financial literacy, if, but I think there's um, it's not a bad example. I mean, it's a great example because it's very real world, and we all have to financially survive. But um, I would switch the question if 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 that were the issue to be taught from finance. To capital, because the concept of capital really means the ability to do something in future. It might be money that lets you do that. It might be your social relations. It might be your cultural facility, and it opens up. It widens up the door. And I think um, uh, probably the best way to think about that is how you would feel if you were how you would teach your children, where it would you know you need to be able to survive. But if you if you're thinking about cap literacy regarding capital as opposed to finance. Um, I think it allows you to walk that path in between the two with integrity. Okay, if I'm understanding it, yeah. 
um, that if you orient around the word capital, does that foreclose thinking about um, non-money oriented ways of surviving in terms of resources? Is that a fair? Yes, I was just trying to find a way of, okay, so, so like a gift economy or some other thing. I don't think so. Um, I think it depends on how you use it, but it's the same way in which I use a model of an information production chain have for a couple of decades. It's useful as a heuristic for a number of analytical purposes. Just because the word production has been used, it doesn't mean that you can't, that it, has, that it necessarily has to. So I think it's in the way that it's used. There's value, if you go, in my view, um, one of the things academics don't think enough about, I think, is, is the size steps that they take and how they relate to an ongoing conversation. We get fascinated with something, we publish something, it gets picked up, it doesn't. Um, it's, you know, we've taken too big a step, we've taken too small a step. We can be much more tactical and strategic about making an argument as it, as it hits a, a current conversation, knowing that things will change further down the road. And I think if you um, are trying to be persuasive about altering how people are thinking about let's stick with finance and money, um, you're going to be more successful starting with language that people are already using and shifting their understanding of it than you know, saying you want to walk around in a sarong and trade uh, coconuts. <laughs> yeah, despite that, yeah. Alex. Uh, so far, the discussion has mainly revolved around uh, empowerment in a positive way. Um, and Lana even uh, suggested these kind of alternative approaches to dealing with power. Um, but I'm wondering if you can kind of throw power to the ground and kick it in the shins. Um, by which I mean um, kind of approaching power for, in a, a different manner um, by still retaining the structure but dealing with it in certain ways. Um, so, for example, uh, I believe that recently in First Monday, uh, Helen Nissenbaum from NYU published uh, this paper called A Political Theory of Obfuscation. And basically she and her postdoc, uh, Finn Brunton, uh, talk about these various ways that you can obfuscate um, to deal with power but still kind of retain yourself within the system. Um, and she goes through all these different examples of like uh, using aluminum in the sky to fiddle with radar and uh, using uh, or like feeding false data into Google search so it messes up your history and you can't really figure out um, what's in there. Um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of um, step away from from just mere empowerment and kind of um, talk a little bit about strategies for disempowerment, um, but still empowering the individual um, at, at the very base level. Oh, do you want to go ahead? <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> I, know, I know track me not. So it's a, it's an, uh, you know what, what the, what the uh, questioner was referring to. So um, uh, one can uh, install a Firefox add-on and when searching uh, the web, um, your queries won't be, won't be your, to your queries that, would, that are saved by, by Google come also other queries which are random. Um, so what then happens is is that is that your Google can't uh, save your search history, and so when Google can't save your search history, um, then Google uh, can't personalize your results. And when Google can't personalize your results, um, then you get some sorts of generic results that people used to get about you know a few years ago. 
um, uh, and you are, in some sense, I don't know, like out of. I mean, you're 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 no longer participating, right? So you're you're then outside. Um, so the irony, the irony is this this empowering. I mean, in a sense, right? So you're no longer you're no longer getting the ads, you're no longer getting the deals, you're no longer participating in the niche economy. You're not a niche, um, right? So, so, so in um, in uh, obfuscating, you become an outsider. So, ironically, you become that which you were striving not to become. Where is the guy who asked the question? Or a saboteur, almost. Or incredibly happy. Or incredibly unhappy. I mean, the, the <laughs> argument, the niche economy argument is that you envy each other's niches. If you're, not getting the, if you're not getting the offers, if you're not getting the upgrades, if you're not switched on, um, then you're out of it. I mean, I, I'm not saying... Uh, okay. But I'm just saying that this is a this is an argument. Yeah, yeah. This stuff's being recorded, so we do have to be on mic. But I think there are a number of issues here, right? So one of them has to do with sort of throwing noise into the system. One of them has to do with sort of hiding from the system. I think one of the things that the Center for Future Civic Media has been doing here is actually using the tools and repurposing them and really sort of quite clever and critical ways. So, for example, um, there's a project called Red Ink that takes financial management tools, right, the, the, what Lana was saying about ways to sort of use the system to your advantage, and it twists them in a way that actually you can use them to run financial analytics on what your local Walmart is doing in terms of business. And if you don't like some practice they have, you can say to them, this will be the implication of us having a boycott. We can show you in numbers that you understand what it's going to cost you if you persist in this or that activity. Right? So it, it sort of reworks a set of tools that are very much of the system into ways that allow one to sort of confront the system. Uh, there have been some wonderful uh, news mapping projects that show what the news feeds are from the world's various news providers. Um, and where the pickup is. So we kind of know what we see in our newspapers, but what you don't know what, what you don't know what was available for the newspaper to actually pick from. And you certainly can't see on a global level what the patterns are. What news is actually coming from Beijing today? And where in the world is that is that news being picked up? We have mapping projects, really brilliant mapping projects that enable people to map at very low levels and in very high detail the kinds of things that aren't of much interest to Google Earth. So, for example, um, this has been used for squatter communities in, in places like Peru. If you can demonstrate that you've squatted long enough, you have a right to the land. Well, how would a squatter, how would a, a, someone who, who doesn't have command of the language or the system, uh, liter, you know, sort of written command of the language or the system, how would they document uh, that presence in a place, especially over and against powerful forces that may want that land? This is a system with some helium, a garbage bag, and a self-shooter digital camera uh, can document that space. The real trick, the real elegant work was on the side of developing software that can sort of repurpose these dodgy photos into brilliant, crystal clear, low-level maps. Or even in our own part, neck of the woods here with the, with the oil spill in the Gulf, one of the, restri one of the sort of curious restrictions was uh, aerial photography over that oil leak. You couldn't fly over, I, I think, at a, a below 30,000 feet unless you were the U.S. government or BP. So who's going to document that leakage? 
They could go out on shrimp boats with these little helium balloons and self-shooters and document from, uh, take your pick, 100 feet, a couple hundred feet, what was happening, stitch it all together into crystal clear maps. Those are, it seems to me, wonderful repurposing, critical and interventionist repurposings, not just hiding and throwing up some smoke and not just pretending you're not part of the human race. It's about sort of giving this stuff a tweak that makes a difference, and that strikes me as very powerful. This is the Natalie Jeremy Jenko moment, of course. Um, yeah, I, I, would, I would disagree that the examples that were brought up actually have to do with disempowering. There's still power is always relational, so you're, you're dancing back in a different kind of way, again, in the same way that Gandhi did. Um, and if we can, I like that we've moved now from the individual level of activity in the question and in Richard's comments to the sort of group level uh, that William talked about. Um, I'm starting a research project in the fall. Iceland has, Iceland's parliament has said, we want to be the free speech haven of the world. So now you've got a country level. Okay, a small country, but still it's a country. Um, and so, um, you know, they've, they've made the legal commitment, they've made the political commitment, and now they're sitting there tr- thinking about, okay, so we've harbored the guy who's attacking the U.S. Department of Defense. Gee, I wonder what that will mean for us. And they're beginning to work out the details of it. But I think it's, it's interesting that we're seeing that kind of pushback at that level of the social structure. I would like to propose a certain way of perhaps understanding our problem of empowerment and, dis- and, 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 and power in the sense of reminding us that when we talk about politics nowadays, especially the last 10 years, we're really talking about the politics of security, which is something very special insofar as the purpose of it is to reduce variables in a political context mm-hmm. to as few as possible. And um, it seems to me that um, in one of the sessions today, it was we talked about Facebook and the fact they only have a like button but no dislike button <laughs> is um, the greatest success of that politics so far, the greatest um, success in reducing variables to exactly one. And um, so what seems to be happening to me is that we have a a kind of division in language uh, under this, in, in this, within this context of security, where on the one hand, we have a lot of meaningless chatter, a, a lot of activity without effect. We have an enormous spiraling uh, 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 cloud of chatter coming out of the social media in which there is absolutely no politics. Um, colleague of mine, uh, Jeff Cox, once defined friendship as the abolition of the abolition of politics and friendships, friendships without politics, friendships that have no political effect whatsoever. So we have that on the one hand, like this meaningless chatter, free of any political content, and on the other hand, I think we have a big sphere of telling silence where there is silence that actually means a lot, but that doesn't have a language in the sense that there is no dislike button. And um, I think the effect that WikiLeaks had is that it touched exactly on that absent dislike button. It touched exactly on that sphere of politics where there is no language but the simple fact of identity. So... 
that's just a suggestion. Hmm. Thanks. Thanks. I'm just yeah. going to add to that. I actually like the fact that there is no dislike button uh, because you have the option of the comment box. Um, and I find, <laughs> I find that's more powerful than just saying this. Um, some of the most interesting stuff that I've, I've come across in terms of conversations that either had to do with ethical or, or, or um, social justice came from those comment boxes. Um, and there's people that actually write out dislike and then they'll put a whole blurb of why they dislike it. So I'm all for the no dislike but, button. But the, but the comments space isn't indexed by search engines, whereas the like votes are counted. Mm. And that's yeah. the point. I, th I think eventually there will be a dislike button, I think. I would just compliment you on the on the cons, on the several conceptual uh, offerings that you um, presented us with, and I think what you're describing is what I was trying to get at with the spend rails in terms of you know what you're looking at is not there. It might be a bit too late to ask this question, but don't you think a good portion of the um, the, the 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 systems you've been talking about, Facebook and so forth, all these social networking things are just variations on bread and circuses to keep us busy, right? While the real work of the world is being done by the financial sector, who is actually separated the whole financial process from us. And one of the reasons why we've had this major turndown in, in, in the economy has to do with the fact that those financial programs, which are running aut autonomously, are making trades, moving vast sums of money back and forth, and really has nothing to do with people at all except you're moving vast sums of money from point A to point B into people's pockets, that vast, that small amount of people who are you know, taking control of the world. While we're just sitting here keeping busy with Facebook, online, reading our email, and doing all these other things. So there might be some level of empowerment or some good feelings that come out of this, or we might be able to you know, help that small group of impoverished people in that part of the world because the, the vast sums of money are going to other individuals to, to kind of eck out an existence here. If we could add the security side to that, um, as our um, bottom economic strata are declining in income, the um, financial support that the U.S. government is providing to the Taliban, for example, keeps going up. So if we put those two stories together... But that's, I mean, this is a, a, this is a long argument, and Marx, uh, Marx heralded the way, uh, you know, a while back, but it's true. Uh, it's true that there are plenty of things that can distract, and that's why I think it's, it's really important to look at what, how we can raise consciousness, enhance our level of critical engagement, you know, by repurposing a lot of these tools that could otherwise... Uh, I don't think it's the problem of the tool so much as the way we, we use the tool, and it just goes back to what... It's not the camera, it's what we do with that camera. And I think there are, you know, what we, I guess throughout this panel, and D David is perhaps correct in, in, in saying we erred on the side of um, critical intervention, but all of these things have, can be deployed. They have affordances, and those affordances can be used for, for, for good or ill. The trick, I think, and especially as folks engaged in media, is, is for us to think about how we can really put these to, uh, to critical advantage. You know, I agree with you. There are good and bad to every tool, right? A, a fork can be used in a positive way or in a negative way. And I guess the question is that, that if you, these tools are being used to keep people busy uh, and that makes them feel good, that's great. You're, you're, you're feeding these people things that, that keep them busy. But there are also things you can do with the technology to make 
positive changes in the world. And we might argue that right. the changes that occurred in, in the Arab world had to do with the media, right? The, the, this, this collaborative media that helped change things, right? We don't know where that's going to end, but that's, that's a positive thing. But if you look at the way things are going in the world today, and particularly with the financial sector, how can we use these tools to, to, to engage that? I mean, where does the empowerment come from what we have right now to say change the way the financial structure of the world is? That's a very big, you're right, that is a very big question. How are we going to change the financial system of the world? Um, and we're not going to answer it in three minutes. <laughs> but, but I would say, I mean, this goes back to the like-dislike. I do think it's more than the simple binary of these are good or these are bad, and that those are, those are sort of imbricated at some level. And in fact, what people do is, is actually, there's a ton of creative things that people are doing with these tools that uh, could be read as a waste of time by someone who's not part of it, but could be read as reinforcing relationships. I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff. So I think we have to be careful with that bifurcation. Um, but you're right, the, question, the bigger, the overarching question of how we distribute power, how we distribute resource uh, is a huge question and one that I think is best dealt with over, over a glass. Yeah, yeah. Close thy Manovich, open thy marks. Sorry? I'll just say I'll just say really, really briefly, like it seems to um, it seems to me that Facebook I mean not necessarily to me, but maybe to or maybe to me, if Facebook is a more compelling experience than um, you know, financial markets, data sets and many eyes or something, you know, but there are there are uh, financial data markets, data sets available. Uh, for uh, and there are tools. I mean, we just heard about one from the future of Sifi. I mean, so it's it's not like it's it's not like it's in the it's 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 not like it's the not no not at all in the realm of possibility to actually work on that on that uh, on that problem in this day and age with the kinds of the kinds of data sets and the kinds of tools that, that we have available. That's a hopeful note. Um, no, I was just going to say, I think one of the more interesting websites that I've come across recently, it, it's actually not up, I've just been doing a lot of reading on it, um, and it just shows a really great initiative from a group of people, um, is actually called the toolbox.net, um, and it's actually head up by um, Witness and The Hub, and what they're doing is creating, sort of pouring money into creating applications for an iPhone um, that are primarily based on social justice, so mapping applications, um, applications specifically built for to get voices heard and out. But again, my, my, I always go back to the idea of um, you know, just lack of access, right? I think, I think the question that we didn't really raise is this idea of, it's great, we're building, we're pouring money into creating these apps and these websites, however, what about the people who don't have access to them? Because that's still a major issue. So access, a digital divide, it's still there. Um, and I think we need, we need to sort of, we need to address that. So that brings us back to policy again, and I would like to speak slightly out of turn in, in a misbehaved manner. Um, just wanted to share that in a couple of weeks, MIT Press is launching a new book series on information policy uh, that has very much to do with these issues of the relationship between information and power. I'm editing it with Paul Yeager of the University of Maryland, so if anybody has manuscripts that touch upon the kinds of issues we've been dealing with, we welcome them. Um, just to make uh, perhaps a final word, but but I think one of the really uh, one of the things we've str str strived to do in this program, and I don't think in some senses successfully, you know, I opened the other day saying undisciplined, 
And it seems to me that part of this problem, part of the problem of how we deal with uh, finances, with the law, with, uh, with technology, uh, computational technologies in particular, has to do with our disciplinary constraints. And part of the problem is the more advanced these sectors get, the harder it is to sort of be the master of more than one of them. But it seems to be crucial that, that someone like Sandra really embodies someone who is working with the law from a media studies mm-hmm. perspective. And, and that's, that bridging of domains is really crucial because someone has to keep their, I mean, a number of us, a lot of us need to keep our eye on the ball in those sectors and be able to, to leverage that in a way that the rest of us can, can make use of. Same with uh, the, the world of computation. And I think of, you know, obviously Richard, my colleagues, Nick and, and, and Fox here at CMS. They're people who straddle the world of the arts and humanities and, you know, deep level computational uh, uh, practices. Those kinds of, those kinds of, of, of robust interdisciplinary stances are really crucial. And there aren't so many in the world of uh, finances that I know of. I mean, the really deep world. The stuff that occurs in this building, actually, it's just moved across the street. But um, Michel Colomb. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's certainly some. But, boy, we need, we need more. We need a lot more if we're going to change, change this around. Any other words? No? Nope. Time for a drink. Folks, thanks. Thank you.